Welcome to the podcast of Greenlight Bookstore, an independent bookstore in the heart of Brooklyn, New York. Each episode captures the unique voices and conversations of one of our many book events featuring some of today's most exciting authors. You can order any of the books mentioned in this podcast through our website at greenlightbookstore.com, and we often have autographed copies available. You can also visit Greenlight Bookstore in person at our store at 686 Fulton Street in the neighborhood of Fort Greene, or our new store at 632 Flatbush Avenue in the Prospect Lefferts Gardens neighborhood. When you buy a book at Greenlight Bookstore, you allow us to continue to offer free programs like this one, as well as supporting the literary conversations and communities that independent bookstores create. If you don't live close to Greenlight, you can look for your independent bookstore at IndieBound.org. We hope you enjoy the one-of-a-kind literary event recorded in this episode. We're just about to introduce our guests. Let the conversation begin. All right. Welcome, everyone. Um, my name is Ted Ham, and I'm the acting director of the FBI. Um, so, <laughs> now I'm the chair of journalism uh, here at St. Joseph's College, and I'd like to welcome you to the college. Um, this is our 100th anniversary plus one, and we're looking forward to our second century. The Brooklyn Voices series um, is one of the highlights of recent years, and this particular season uh, was full of uh, heavy hitters, um, Zadie Smith, Chris Hayes, uh, and many others. But we're also pleased to um, welcome back Teju Cole, who was also the initial um, speaker in the first event of the year back in August. So it feels like mid-August right now here in the auditorium, but uh, we've all come full, full circle, and Teju Cole's back for a second round with a new book. So it's a testament to his uh, prolific work, and we're happy to have him back. Um, okay, so without further ado, I'm going to welcome up to the stage Jessica Stockton-Bagnulo, the co-owner of Greenlight Bookstore, who is going to introduce tonight's event. Thanks a lot. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Jessica from Greenlight Bookstore, and we are so honored tonight to be hosting Teju Cole in Brooklyn to launch his new book, Blind Spot. He's going to be showing some images from the book, reading from it, and speaking with Ben Lerner, so you are in for a really excellent evening. We are so grateful for this partnership with St. Joseph's College, which allows us to bring you these events in the Brooklyn Voices series in this beautiful space not far from our bookstore on Fulton Street. As Ted mentioned, this is the sort of closing event of our season, um, but we are going to be back in the fall with some more exciting events. September 6th, we'll be hosting Nathan Englander, launching his new novel, Dinner at the Center of the Earth, in conversation with Jonathan, Jonathan Safran Foer. September 14th, Carl Ove Knausgaard will be here to present his new novel, August. And October 2nd, Jeffrey Eugenides presents his short story collection, Fresh Complaint. So tickets for those events will be available soon, and you can find updates and ticket information at greenlightbookstore.com slash Brooklyn Voices. You can also find podcast recordings of some past Brooklyn Voices events, including Teju's last event, actually, at greenlightbookstore.com slash podcast. So our interviewer this evening is Ben Lerner. He was born in Topeka, Kansas, and is currently a professor of English at Brooklyn College. He's received fellowships from the Fulbright, Guggenheim, Howard, and MacArthur Foundations. He's the author of the novels Leaving the Atosha Station, which won the 2012 Believer Book Award, and 1004, which received the Paris Review's Terry Southern Prize, as well as three poetry collections and the nonfiction work The Hatred of Poetry, which he presented at Greenlight last year. 
He'll be speaking tonight with Teju Cole. He was born in the United States and grew up in Nigeria, and he's currently distinguished writer in residence at Bard College. His photography has been exhibited in India and the United States, and he's the author of Every Day is for the Thief, Open City, which won the Penn Hemingway Award and was nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and most recently, Known and Strange Things. And we are proud and a little astonished to realize that Greenlight has hosted the U.S. launch for each of those books, and it is never short of an illuminating experience having him on stage. His newest book, Blind Spot, is an innovative synthesis of words and images and a testament to the art of seeing. Cole's original photographs are accompanied by his lyrical and evocative prose, forming a multi-sensory diary of years of near-constant travel, from a park in Berlin to a mountain range in Switzerland, a church exterior in Lagos to a parking lot in Brooklyn, landscapes beautiful or quotidian that inspire memories, fantasies, and introspections. In the words of Amitava Kumar, who interviewed Cole the last time he was on this stage, Cole the photographer is watchful, but he holds back. Even in the act of speaking to us, he is alert to stillness. The images are imbued with their own lasting mystery, like magical poems that leave brief traces of light on the fingers of a reader who is now alone in the middle of the night. So you're in for something pretty special tonight. Teju is going to be speaking about some of the images from the book, and then Ben will join him on stage for conversation. You'll have the chance to ask your questions after that at the microphone placed right over here. So to present Blindspot, please join me in welcoming to the stage Teju Cole. Thank you. Um, it's good to be home. Um, what Jessica said was true. Every single one of my books, this is the fourth, has been launched at Greenlight, and that's a real privilege to have that relationship with a hometown bookshop. Thank you all for being here tonight. Um, you could be somewhere cooler. You could be drinking something, but you're here with me. I appreciate it very much. Um, before I start, I want to thank the people, well, s the most important people who helped me put this book together. Um, so I want, to t I want to thank Karen, I want to thank Caitlin and Angela for helping me make this book happen. And I want to thank those who made this event happen, um, Jessica and Greenlight Books, um, St. Joseph's, Christine, and Ben, who agreed to be in conversation with me tonight. I just want to start by um, just reading briefly um, some of the... It's easy to, to call them captions because they're short pieces of prose that are next to the images, but actually, in my head, they're not really captions. They're like voiceovers. They're like transcripts of voiceovers that are sort of in my head. I imagine this book a little bit like a very weird documentary film that isn't a film. Um, so I'm just going to give a few examples of what the words are up to in connection with the images, and then we'll have our conversation on stage. And this first one I'll, I'll just show um, without reading its text. How's everybody doing, anyway? You're doing good? I mean, all things considered. 
pretty shitty time. <laughs> but I'm grateful that you're doing well enough to be here with me. I'm very moved always by the faith of the audience. Brienzer Zay. I opened my eyes. What lay before me looked like the sound of the Alphorn at the beginning of the final movement of Brahms' first symphony. This was the sound. This was the sound I saw. Forest of the Cedars of God. Plain and almond trees have mottled bark, but the patterning on poplar trees is particularly loud, almost like military camouflage. To deceive his father-in-law, Laban, with whom he is living in Syria, Jacob makes a deal that Laban will keep the pure-colored animals, and Jacob will keep for himself only the speckled goats and sheep. Only. But if you know Jacob, you know something's afoot. Near the end of the 20th century, scientists experimenting on primates described a new class of brain cells. Mirror neurons, as they came to be called, are fired both when people perform an action and when they watch it being performed. For these neurons, seeing and doing are identical. Their imitative function is thought to be key to empathy, language acquisition, and human self-awareness. Jacob makes sure the more vigorous animals in unspeckled flocks mate in front of an arrangement of plain, almond, and poplar branches. When these flocks lamb, the lambs come out mottled and spotted, and Jacob's share of the flock increases. Laban is furious, but God is against him. Glory be to God for dappled things, all things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, but Jacob, contender and deceiver, knows how. He knows how streaked we are by what we see. Kadisha Valley. I had parked my car in the shadow of the overhanging rock, above the precipice. A man walked past my car, went past the traffic mirror and read safety notice and stood at the very edge. He appeared to be a foreigner. He stood there for a very long time, maybe 15 minutes. He had a camera, but didn't take any photos. I wondered what kind of life he lived, what his past contained, and how he came to be standing here in this faraway country at the edge of the precipice. What was he thinking about there, ahead of me? After taking the photo, I walked past a car parked in the shadow of the overhanging rock above the precipice. I went past the traffic mirror and read safety notice and stood at the edge of the precipice. There was a man in the car behind me, a local, to judge from the plates. He just sat there, not moving, and with no change in his expression. When I turned around and walked past him, probably a quarter of an hour later, his expression was still the same. I imagine that he came here to the edge of the precipice to get away from a difficult life, to enter into aloneness, silence, the cool of the rock's shadow. What was he thinking about there behind me?
Salma. The problem is that he writes for the New Yorker. The problem is that he left Harlem and left the church. He's writing for the New Yorker and he's talking black liberation while fucking white boys. The problem is that he doesn't understand the urgency of armed struggle. The problem is that he is questioning the Panthers instead of joining them. Jimmy hates blacks. Jimmy should stick to writing novels. His polemics are repetitive and tedious. Jimmy is inauthentic, sexually perverse, and unmasculine. The criticism is brutal. It gives him headaches. It makes his hair go white. So he keeps leaving America, and not only because of white supremacy. But who remembers any of that now, now that he's a secular saint? The difficulty now is to find someone who does not reflexively quote James Baldwin. All the words we need for our predicament are to be found in him. We quote him as though he had always been universally praised. We lean too hard on his honeyed words. But in his lifetime, he was extending this work like an arm of hope into the future, working as though he knew his work would be helpful mainly to those who had not yet been born. Rivaz. If you walk along the northern lip of Lac Leman, between Montreux and Lausanne, you will see before you the lake's flat shine all across to Evian-les-Bains in France. On steep slopes, you wend your way past the wine-growing villages of Corso, Saint-Saphorin, Rivaz, and Chèbre, feeling in your legs the pleasure of a long walk along narrow old roads, some of which have new surfaces. We are a small group. We walk in solitude. There are people working at the vineyards. In one grove, a man harvests by hand, onerous-looking work. Farther along, in about half an hour, we will taste the white wines of Lavo. Our mouths will be explored by the nectar of the landscape we have crossed. For now, below us are brown-roofed hamlets, and a pair of twin boys, around ten years old, come laughing up the road. Do you live here? We have always lived here. Do you like it? We love it. Their answers are unison. I rest at a concrete outcrop with a bunting of vintner's blue nets, a blue the same color as the lake. It is as though something long awaited has come to fruition. A gust of wind sweeps in from across the lake. The curtain shifts and suddenly everything can be seen. The scales fall from our eyes. The landscape opens. No longer are we alone. They are with us now, have been all along. All are living and all are dead. Brazzaville. Darkness is not empty. While preparing this book, I rescanned the negative of the boy by the Congo. His eyes disappear, I had written. But all of a sudden, with slightly altered settings, I could now see his face, his eyes. Darkness is not empty. It is information at rest. Late in the 19th century, after hundreds of years of pressure by the European colonists, the villages in the interior of the Congo River began to succumb to the invaders. In response to this civilizational crisis, 
Mangaaka power figures were sculpted ever larger, growing from their miniature sizes to the height of a man. In each village, the Mangaaka was a sentry to ward off the oncoming collapse, poised to spring into action, as scholars have written, and intensely reflective. The Mangaaka was full of potent medicine, with eyes of white metal enamel, irises of iron ore. This boy is double-visioned. He is looking out, looking outward. But here, poised at the edge of the crisis, he's also looking inward, looking in. That was funny because I couldn't, I mean, to celebrate Blind Spot, I was put in this room while you were showing images. Yes. And so I, get, I didn't get to see them. Uh, but I've seen them in, in, in the book, which is really beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so uh, one, one thing I noticed about the book is that there are very few um, human figures in it. I mean, there are human figures, mm. but there are very few faces. Yeah because the majority of people who are photographed uh, have their back turned towards the camera. And even when faces appear, they tend to be second-order representations. It tends to be a photograph of someone's face in an advertisement on a bus, right, right. or the face of someone in a portrait that's in a room that you photographed. Right. And yet I felt throughout the entire book like the face was a kind of present mm -hmm. absence. And mm -hmm. so I thought we could start by talking about the paucity of faces, like why, yeah. like why, why you avoid or resist yeah. faces. I just, um, yeah, faces are so um, powerful as, as bearers of psychological states, of emotional states that, you know, they're, they're kind of fissile, they're radioactive, and so you have to use them very carefully. Otherwise, you end up sort of dispersing this emotional energy in an un uncontrolled way. So that, you know, that, that's one reason it was, you know, sort of the power of faces. Just today I was reading something Julian Barnes wrote about Lucian Freud. Um, and Barnes' observation was that, um, you know, the, 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 all the genitals in Freud also, all, they all, they're as different as the faces. But, but, but Barnes sort of noticed that um, variety of genitals does not actually necessarily advance any kind of narrative, you know. I mean, this one's circumcised, this one's not. This one's kind of floppy, this one is small. You know, faces is really where it's... My book does not contain as very few faces. I'm trying to remember now, almost no genitals. No genitals. Um, but, I mean... You just decreased your book sales. I know, I know, I know. Um... Oh, well, yeah, um, but faces are really one of, the, one of the places where we locate meaning. And so for me in this book, it was very much a kind of withholding. So I have that series of pictures where there are people there and they're turned away. 
And I just wanted to think about, I, I wanted to think about that. Um, so that at the very end, that image that you did not see, but they did, um, is, is the last image in the book. Yeah. Um, and he's looking directly out, but he's not even looking at you. He's not looking at the viewer. He's in this in-between place. He's looking, it's like a thousand yard stare, so. I mean, that, um, you showed both images, right? I did, yeah. Yeah, the, um, it's a really, it's a really powerful moment in the book for a variety of reasons. There's like a lot of return with a difference mm -hmm. in the book, yeah. a kind of repetition that um, emphasizes the degree to which repetition is never pure repetition. Right. I think you even talk about that somewhere. Yeah. Um, but those images in particular, you know, you see the image first and you don't see the face. Then you see right. it again and you see the yeah. gaze of the boy right. beside the Congo. And it has this effect, or at least for me when reading, of like you're watching the boy open his eyes. Right. Which recalls, probably for both of us, yeah. this great Chris Marker movie, La Jetée, which is composed entirely of stills except for one brief shot of a woman opening her eyes. And... and I, I want to use that as an excuse mm. to ask you about stillness and motion mm. in the book. That is to say, on the one hand, you're looking at still images. On the other hand, there's montage. There's the movement Absolutely. across images exactly. in time. And I just yeah. wonder if you could say something about how you imagine, as a writer and as a photographer, the syntax of the images. Mm -hmm. um, part of what's going to happen tonight is because, as you all know... Um, Ben is a great reader of images, actually, you know, one of the best that we have. So he's going to end up saying things where I'm going to nod as if I've always thought about that. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's the first time I'm hearing it, and it, it makes so much sense, that thing about La Jete. And as you know, we're both huge partisans of Chris Marker. It never occurred to me. You know, there's that moment in the film. It, the, the film is literally just stills. And then there's like a few seconds right in the middle of the film, near, near, the, near the end of the film, where a woman, we're looking at the still photo and then she blinks. And you just freak out. You're like, whoa, thought I was watching a slideshow, you know? You know, yeah, is this a JPEG or a GIF? What's going on? Um, I mean, he, he has a series of JPEGs and he has a GIF in the middle, you know? Um, and I never thought about that, even though I will readily admit that the presiding spirit over this book is Chris Marker in another film, Sans Soleil. But what it helps me understand is the continuity between his work, because um, La Jetée is still images and voiceover. They happen to be black and white images, and they happen to be strongly narrative. Sans Soleil is non-narrative moving color images with voiceover. And for me, Blind Spot is somewhere in between the two. The, what I find miraculous when you think about still versus moving images is that still photography is still a thing. Um, you would think we would be done by now, you know? Um, the fact that early in the 20th century, Ajay put his photos into a book, you could just sort of like flip through. So that technology already exists. And there were already picture albums in the 19th century. So we're dealing with a particular technology, which is a sequence of photos in a book, which is already 150 years old. And yet, 
hopefully, people are going to buy this book tonight and still be into that concept. It's not singing and dancing. It has no soundtrack. The images are not moving. Even though everyone in here has in their pocket a device on which they could screen Apocalypse Now and just like have their minds blown by, you know, you know, you could watch No Country for Old Men right here on your cell phone. And yet there's still that thing of sitting with a still image and turning the page. Um, I think we're, I don't think we're born with it, but we're certainly acculturated to appreciating limits. Um, I, I talk about Blind Spot as a kind of documentary film, but I think this might be its ideal form in a book um, that is speaking to the idea of a documentary film. I don't think it necessarily needs to have footage um, because then that moment where you turn that page and the boy's eyes are open then fires the imagination in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if you could say something too about the relationship between the syntax. Of, I mean, I swear I know other words than syntax. Yeah, that's all right. But the, 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 <laughs> the, you know, the order of, you know, the unfolding, the prose. I mean, one of the yeah. things that's amazing yeah. about Sans Soleil is like the rhythm of the mm-hmm. editing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really great about this book is the patience of its unfolding in time as the reader you know, participates in the, in the codex form. And I, I wonder if you could say something about you know, the, the, the relationship between the syntax of that, the images flow, and yeah. your syntax, but in your prose, which I, yeah. I feel like there's a parallel, that there's a patience in your sentences mm-hmm. that is different from but related to the patience of looking and the unfolding of the yeah. images across pages. I, mean, I think ultimately it's a kind of um, falling in love with the idea of montage, right? So when did that come into filmmaking? Maybe in the 30s or something. It was probably the Russians. They invented everything. How, how do we feel about the Russians? <laughs> Russian filmmaking, innovations, you know. Um, but, and certainly by the time of Tarkovsky, it becomes this amazing tool. You put footage right next to footage with which it has no obvious relationship. And you're just saying, trust me, because this, this footage and this footage are seeded with the psychological cues that will make them make sense at length. So the idea of juxtapositions that are not obvious, particularly in something like The Mirror, um, he uses in all his films, but you, I mean, you, you'll be in someone's house, they're having a conversation, it's in color, and then suddenly you cut to like archival footage of World War II. And it's such a powerful effect. Number one, it's exhilarating because you think, wow, he's really free, but then cumulatively over the, the course of the film, he's taking you on this journey that straight narration could not do. Poets do it all the time. What's the next poem? An unrelated one that is secretly related. Um, and then people who do photo books do it all the time, right? It's the, <clears throat> you know, and that's the next one. It makes sense and it doesn't make sense. How did you arrive there? Novelists don't do it so much because they're under the pressure of sense-making, of forward motion. Uh, And for me, montage is much more about patterning, about flow. And this is what's great about Sans Soleil. 
Um, and it, in that way, it's actually similar to a film made the same year, Koyaniskatsi by Jeffrey Riggio, that soundtrack by uh, Philip Glass. Koyaniskatsi doesn't have a, a voiceover. Um, the soundtrack acts like a voiceover. But it is another film that is less about narrative and more about interconnection as an organizing principle, more about flow and stuttering and things coming to a stop and controlling the speed, you know, so that when I have four pictures in a row of people turned away from you, even though they're done on like three different continents, there's a flow there. And then suddenly you have a lamp on the table yeah. and then it, it moves it in a different direction. So, um, yeah, I was curious to try to make uh, an argument of that kind on two parallel tracks. In a sense, the book is like two lyric essays that meet. The lyric essay of the fragments, which all um, elusively um, come together, and then of, of, the, of the photos. And I tell you, it's a, my, I think my, my publisher's here. It's amazing that Random House agreed to publish this, because I don't know what they're thinking, but um, <laughs> because I really wanted this book to be done in a spirit of freedom. So, yeah. Well, the, I mean, because the other thing that's... I mean, you, you talked about the forward motion of a novel. I mean, this book, it's somewhere in the book, well, and actually at multiple points in the book, you raise the question of um, the relation between this work and the other writing you've done and other genres. I mean, yeah. I think at one point um, you, you say something about the book you know, both being readable as a discrete work mm -hmm. and also as the, the, the fourth entry in a, in a, in a quartet. In a, in a quartet yeah. So, um, what about the syntactic relationship between <laughs> your books? Yes. You know, I mean, I, yes, I, yes. You know, the, 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 the blind spot or the significant gap between the yeah. genres, which now, I mean, it was already there for sure, yeah. but now with this work, feels more active than ever yeah. in the different work that you've done. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. It's funny having him ask me a question about metafictional devices because, <laughs> you know, because this is the man who wrote a novel about a young author who, was, who had to write a novel and was having a, you know. <laughs> so, um, and did, by the way, I'll answer your question, but did you have this experience with A Torture Station where, the, where people were like, that's not even a novel? Oh, yeah, where yeah. They, say, they say it doesn't have a plot. That's what they right. say yeah. about us. It doesn't, it doesn't have, have a plot. A plot. And like, yeah. it's not, is, that, is that a real novel? Um, I definitely had that like in the first few months of Open City. And it's amazing. Time it heals all wounds. Everybody agrees Open City is a novel now. So I'm really happy. But the first two months, I was getting so much stick. They were like, that's not even a novel. You know, you know we don't do it that way. Well, now we do. Um, you know, I... I've been told, by the way, that the general rule is if somebody doesn't turn into a wizard, it's not a novel. Oh, oh is that yeah. right? That was, your, that was your problem. Yes. And it's not a political situation unless you can analogize it to something that happened at Hogwarts, right? <laughs> Have you guys seen that on, online where, you know, somebody would just start like, oh, my God, they're what, what, muggles? You know, uh, you know, this must be the... Uh, Slytherin? I, I don't know. Whatever. You know, they, 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 just, they go off into that, you know, J.K. Rowling language. And then, finally, somebody old and mature like ourselves, and maybe a little bit, you know, obnoxious, shows up and says, guys, you know, there are other books in the world. <laughs> you know, not everything is a 
Harry Potter allegory. So anyway, they're wizards. The books are all wizards. My book is full of wizardry. You just have to buy it first, and then you really look closely. Um, between the, f- the four, I mean, I was thinking of the work of my friend Hisham Matar, who really keeps going back to this subject of disappearance, loss, Libya, um, the loss of his father, and thinking about how that country broke down. And this is like the third book, and he keeps approaching this from a different uh, perspective in fiction, in nonfiction. Um, I mean, that's really a guy who has like a singular topic that he is creatively, intelligently worrying that subject. And for me, I feel like I have one subject but not one terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one of the things that really worries me is, 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 is certainty. Um, what are the limits of what we can know? How sure are we allowed to be about anything? You know, um, you know, and this book is the one that makes it really explicit. What is missing? You know, um, I, I think the history of um, intellectual pursuit, especially in the Western sense, is of competing certainties. You know, white man shows up and says, "I'm sure," and then another white man shows up and says, "Are you sure?" Because I'm sure. You know. You know, and it's like a history of unsures, and and I don't want to be sure, um, partly because of positionality. As you know, as a black guy, I can't afford to be sure. Um, but it's also the liberation of not having to carry the burden of being objective. You know, so and I think that's a subject all through. That even when my narrator is performing a kind of objectivity, I have to undercut him with fragility that he might be aware of or not. Um, so it's not, oh, I'm, let's say in the essay collection, I'm writing this um, subject, about this subject, about you know, this photographer, and here's the final word. Very often I would like to talk about where I was when I saw it and how I felt about it in addition to the facts, and I want to offer a possible interpretation of what it might be doing, you know. Um, and that is, and by the way, that is not something that is foreclosed, of course not, to, to white guys. <laughs> you know, because a, a big part of learning that technique came from a, a man that this current book is, 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 is dedicated to, John Berger. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about John and your connection with him. He's, I mean, I, I know that he's someone we both love very yeah, much. Yeah, um... What does that, do you, I can't ever tell if people know, I feel like there are two categories of people, they're the kind of people who don't know John Berger's work and then the people for whom he matters immensely. And right, it, so it's like really hard to yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like you're doing the wrong explanation either right, way. Right, right, yeah, uh, like exactly, don't Berger explain to an right. audience that already knows him. You know, uh, he, he, he's most widely known for this thing called Ways of Seeing, which was this very accessible and one of kind of the first protracted arguments that, you know, like history, there, there's that, that ideology determines how we see things, um, but artworks aren't reducible to ideology, and that looking at an artwork is both experiencing a sensual surface and also experiencing uh, a class expression mm-hmm. or a power relation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a man of immense political commitment and whose work increasingly, always, but increasingly, 
uh, combined text and image. Right. And um, I think, like with your book, also had a patience. I mean, it was, a, it was an argument that you can't leave the technologies of sight to the admin. No, you know, yeah, that, that, yeah. That, ha- that you have to slow it down and you have to think about the relation between text and image, thinking about the, both of those things as both made by individuals and also as, as um, you know, refracting a really complicated cultural history. So I don't know. I mean, he was... He, was, he, never, he never gave up on pleasure. That was the interesting thing. He was, yeah. a, he was a Marxist. He understood sort of the ideology sort of roiling beneath the surface of anything we might be experiencing or looking at. And yet, he loved what was beautiful and what appealed beyond its material circumstances. You know, he has that, that wonderful line that we're not, we, I'm going to, terrible thing, misquoting Berger, but that we're not, you know, that the human is not reduced to material circumstances, but that, you know, we dream like, a dog in his basket of hares in the open field, mm-hmm. you know, where the dog is just like dreaming of chasing hares, because, mm-hmm. you know, and, that, and, you know and, that is, and that is what we are. We are sort of like dreaming awake, knowing that it's better than this. It's better than the material circumstances we face. Um, I asked him about um, taking photos um, because he... For me, he was the greatest writer on photography and saw an inspiration in that direction as as well. And he said he tried it briefly. He learned how to develop films, I think maybe back in the 70s or something. He took a few photos. And he found for him that making images um, ended up restricting what he would have wished to otherwise write. Um, That that, that not making images, he, he really was also into drawing but that taking photographs, if he's at a scene and he takes a photo of it, that it sort of like shut down, it foreclosed possibilities for him. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting because, you know, I try to write about photography and, and politically and about scenes, but I'm also taking photographs at the same time, and I, I, don't, I, I don't feel that the same thing. I don't feel that pressure. I, I feel like the doors remain open because the writing happens later anyway. But one of the interesting things about this book, I mean, in relation to Berger's work, is how politics is everywhere and nowhere. Mm-hmm. In the sense that you, you write about a kind of suspicion of the image's ability to capture political mm-hmm. context. I mean, right. we write about that explicitly at a, mm-hmm. at a couple points. And I feel like that, um, but without that being, you know, some notion of art for art's sake or right. pure aestheticism, right. instead, right. That, that being the idea that it's important to resist... Um, you know, resist the idea that any image could be total. Right. So, you know, I mean, you were talking about complicated, you know, this is questions too big, like all the other ones, right? I mean, thinking about positionality, not mm-hmm. being objective, etc. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you, I just want to invite you to throw language at what it means, yeah, to be, to be, what it means to be taking photos and writing at a time when, you know, on the, on the one hand, we have a, I mean, we have a very serious fascist capture of the state. I mean, let's, mm-hmm. let's call it what it is. And then, uh, and, and we also live at a time in which um, the image is so dominant, the kind of uncritical acceptance of the image um, right. is so dominant politically. How do you, 
how do you make or unmake images in right. that context? And, and, you know, I think my go-to answer for that is with doubt, doubtfully, uncertainly, um, peripherally, um, and be, be skeptical of the claim that the image is making, you know. Um, f- photographs are so good at capturing what things look like. Um, that it becomes a kind of bamboozlement, you know. Um, you've captured what it looks like, and you're like, ah, now I know what it is. But actually, you don't. You've only captured what it looks like. So, you know, Winogrand says, I photograph to see what things look like photographed. Um, and that is interesting for its own sake. But I think I, I want to photograph to... if possible, to suggest what is not being photographed. I want a photograph to be a finger pointing to something that's not in the photograph. Um, I want to, and maybe this is where I, maybe, maybe I'm close to, 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 to John's attitude about taking pictures, right? Which is that I also want to disavow the power of the, the image I've made. Um, or, or rather, I want to disavow its Authority, it can be powerful, possibly, um, with the voiceover in its own form, but it has to hint that there's more. There has to be something there, you know, that that, that is more than what what you're seeing. Uh, one of I, I sort of get worked up by a lot of photojournalism because of the claims it makes, when actually all we're looking at is is a very pretty image. Of, of war, disaster, suffering, or happiness, but very often a one-dimensional, exhilarating image. I, I adore Cartier-Bresson, but it's, it's no longer enough. Um, what, he, what he has made are, are extraordinarily beautiful images, but it is not, you go through the decisive moment, and it's, it's a lesson in form. It's not a political lesson. It, it does not... Um, tell you a single thing about Indonesian politics or about the conditions of life there, really. What it, what it does is give you a bunch of beautiful pictures of various places, including Indonesia. So. so now that I said out loud that we live in this moment of the uncritical acceptance of the image, mm. I somehow feel like that's true, but then I'm also thinking, like, no, but we also live in this moment where you know, if there's image of, if there are images of Trump getting pissed on by a prostitute or whatever in Russia or whatever, that he would just say, like, no, it's not real. Right. So, so, so we also live in an era of this, like, fake, this idea that actually, um, in a very dangerous way, I mean, this used to be, absolutely. like, emancipation, like, we don't have to believe in the hegemon, but right. now there's also this idea that um, images are just images, like, in the general Right, culture. anybody could have made it up, right. I don't have to be, so what, we, what we're actually facing is a moment of weaponized prejudice, you know. Um, and so it, it still so, you know, answers your point, which is cr- critical response is actually not there. Um, what we have is weaponized prejudice. Um, and it's very interesting to me when it's happening on our side, you know. Um, and I look at it, and I, I, do you ever think, like, oh, I should just do a book that's like Bath's uh, mythologies? Because there's so much that needs reading that we see there's so much propaganda um, that people just sort of like swallow whole. 
Well, what's really interesting to me is once there's evidence that it is not as it claims to be, what do people say? They're like, it was good though. Could be, you know, nice meme. Or, you know, it, people give some f- version of doesn't matter because it was emotionally true to us. It, it, it confirmed what we thought and therefore it's great. One that's been making the rounds this week is a painting of uh, our recent president, Barack Obama, in the infamous tan suit. You remember that? Very, one of the greatest scandals of his uh, administration. Um, and there's a painting of him in that tan suit, you know, sort of, you know, looking fly the way he looks fly. Um, and the, the caption was, this is his official painting in, this, in the White House. And people were like, yeah, grade A trolling. This is amazing. And then we had that narrative about this was the only scandal of his presidency. Oh, I really miss him. And I, I mean, it would have been rude to mention the drones. Um, <laughs> but there was this sort of like celebration of the ineffable coolness of the former commander-in-chief compared to the utter idiot who is holding that position now. And, you know, then it very quickly emerged after maybe 25,000 retweets. Um, people don't even play with small numbers anymore, you know? It's like, it, that, it's not viral unless it's like 20,000 retweets these days. You know, it's like within a few hours. And it emerges that this is not true at all. Somebody just made a painting of Obama and and put it online and said, this is the official portrait in the White House, and it spread far and wide. And then the responses to that, which maybe reached a tiny fraction, the response was, well, it doesn't matter. It's a cool image, though. Yeah, you know. And does, that, does, does it matter that people don't care? Does it matter that the what we would consider just sort of like the habits of questioning, you know? Like, I, I mean, I feel like I have incredible radar for this. I mean, I look at it, I'm like, no, that's not real, you know? I mean, which is like 90% of things, but, you know, or that is probably partly real. Um, Does it matter that people don't care and they look at something and lots and lots of people think it's real and when they find out it's not real, they say, well, at least it's funny. Um, Does that matter? Are you asking? (laughs) Yeah, I'm asking you. Is it, a, is, it, is, it, is it a disaster or am I being uptight? Should I no, let, I think it's... Should, a, I, well, should I let people have their fun? Well, um, uh, I, I mean, I do, I do think that, that one of the interesting things about this moment is that all these things... I mean, I think we're like the same age, right? More or less. Like all these things that... I am for, two years your senior, young man. <laughs> I, can, I can tell by your, by your poise under this, <laughs> this punishing heat. It's hot. Um... <laughs> The, I think that one. That's, <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> How did you do that? Yeah, I'm telling you, white privilege is amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. Wow. You. Thank you. You're welcome. You just had to ask. Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> all this stuff about the constructedness of the image, like that was all emancipatory at yeah. first. Right, yeah, that yeah. was the way we were supposed to like denaturalize. Like it was all yeah. critique. Yeah, and one of the things that the right 
you know, which is a real right-wing movement, you know, it's a real right-wing movement, it's a real 1930s style right-wing movement, um, is doing is like using all those academic pieties for their own purposes. Absolutely. Like it turns out, you yeah. know, they, like identity politics for yeah. the white, you know, yeah. what were the fragility, yeah. the, the um, and also this idea of con- the fake news is just a kind of bad inverted form yeah. of, you know, a critique of the natural. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it, yeah, it's mythologies taken to the nth degree where everything yeah. is a myth. It's all quicksand. Yeah. So I think, I think what it, maybe the lesson, I mean, maybe this is my own naivete, but I think, I think it's easy, it was easy for us to think that those critical postures towards the real were somehow inherently the domain of the left for a little, I mean, right. for, for a little while in the, in the 90s, it was easy to think that. And now... Right, um, it was all Stanley Fish. Yeah, yeah well, uh, look what happened to Stanley Fish. And, and yeah. now it's Milo, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, some time ago, I received a signal that we were supposed to open it up oh. to, the, what? Uh, to the audience. No, that's not possible, is it? Shit. I think so. We've been talking for a while. But, really? Um, oh, yeah, wow. so, but, but I want to I ask, like, one, because I forgot, I haven't got to my questions yeah, I know. that I brought. <laughs> but the one, um, but I did, I did want to ask one biographical question, sure. because I, I haven't asked any of those. And, and then we can hear from the audience, which is just that, I, I don't know if people know this yet, but part of the genesis of this book was, uh, I think, tears in your retina yeah. that you had, an ocular condition that did yeah. render you that messed up your vision and you had to relearn to see to a certain degree. So my first and last question for you is, is just kind of about that. If you could talk about how that experience produced this book. Yeah. I mean, in a kind of regretfully cliche way, you know, you sort of undergo some traumatic experience and then work comes out of that. You know, I had a stroke. Here's my stroke memoir. I got divorced. Here's my divorce memoir. You know, I got diagnosed with cancer but I went blind for a couple of days and I didn't say, oh, I'm going to write about my you know, two days of blindness. What's a big deal? Um, but it started affecting the way I took pictures. And really, I mean, before then, I really was taking pictures that were aspiring to this very complex photojournalistic style, very decisive moment, limbs and bodies and the street and going out there and trying to be a tough magnum guy, you know, that is, that is what every young male photographer sort of dreams on, of. And after, I just noticed this shift in my photography towards, it wasn't deadpan, because that assumes a certain stance of irony. It was actually a sense of the holiness of vision, that the quiet corner of a room or light passing across stone was deserving of my attention. It didn't mean that everything I pointed my camera at instantly became a worthwhile photo. What it meant was that I had to learn what within that quiet style worked as a photo, which was much harder to learn. You know, playing tennis without a net, how do you do, you know, free verse that's good poetry if you don't have the crutches, you know? How do you write a novel that works if you don't have plot? How do you make a photograph that works if you don't have incident? So I think that problem ended up intensifying my, already my pre-existing tendency towards epiphany, you know, towards really enjoying being in the world and embracing it, not looking away from the bitterness, but embracing it. So anyway, I, I wrote an essay about that. It was published in Granta, 
um, and it was the last essay in Known and Strange Things, my last book. Um, and that essay is a sort of pivot point because just before I had this eye problem, Open City had been published, and there's a passage in Open City that's an excursus about the blind spot, about what you're missing. I mean, I, the narrator talks about in medical school the day they learned about the blind spot and all of this. So it was kind of a prophecy. You know, I freaked myself out, and I, my, my, my eyeball exploded. I went blind. Um, but so that was reaching back, and then reaching forward, I realized that the title of this final essay of that book needed to be the title of the next book, you know? I mean, name your fears to, in order to confront them, and, you know, and then, and then they're there, you know, so. Questions for Tejan? Anybody? Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Um, so you were mentioning this a little bit. Um, I, I find it so beautiful how you capture just ordinary moments, and like you're saying, not necessarily an incident. And I'm wondering, um, how aware are you at the moment of the photograph of the potential meaning or, or context that you might find within it? Uh, like, what catches your eye? And, and yeah. do you analyze it after, or do you analyze it when you take the picture? Yeah, thank you. I, I have a kind of range of subjects that I tend to go for, at least when I was constructing this book. Yeah, very quiet scenes, you know. A lot of it is shot in daylight, I love concrete, I love, I love ladders, I love veils and cloth, um, and, and certain curious juxtapositions where there's a surreal object, ordinary objects that are acting as if they have an active spirit in them, a gesture that almost looks human or it's charged in some way. You know, so much so that if I'm with a friend who knows what I tend to like, my friend might say, oh, that's a good photo. And I don't always say, but I think to myself a little bit obnoxiously, I have to admit, how do you know it's a good photo? <laughs> it's a potentially promising scene. That's all it is. I'm such a jerk. <laughs> we missed our train. No, we didn't miss our train. Because that wasn't our train. Ah, <laughs> oh, terrible. Don't live with me. It's a nightmare. I'm working on myself. Um, anyway, it's not a photo. I take, I take the picture because it's a potential photo. When I develop the film, it sometimes has a thing in it. Something about the exposure, the continuity of tone, the framing, the objects on the edge that you might not have seen, and then it works as a photo. It goes into that archive bank and then when you're sequencing the book, maybe you start out with 300 such photos, and then you find the 100 or 150 that might actually work for this book. So it's, it's a very uncertain... I take a lot of things that are potential, um, but I actually never know until much later whether it works. So... I, uh, thank I, you. Uh, I actually saw... Ben Lerner give a talk about ekphrasis. You can and raise the mic instead of... Yeah, I don't usually talk into mics. Um, sorry. I was just wondering if, given that you have thought a lot about ekphrasis, if, and if you've thought of the book at all as ekphrasis, or as what the directionality is kind of between the text and the image, 
And in that sense, second part is just sort of uh, critically looking at images, I think has something to do with literacy of looking at images and for people who read uh, to have images be such a huge part of the book, I'm not sure whether they're always used to looking at photos and thinking critically about them. Yeah. So how did you manage that in pairing the writing with it? Thank you. Ekphrasis. Well, I mean, um, I think it's a great question and I might just add to it that in this book, a lot of the time when you're writing about photographs, you're also creating relays with other media. You talk about paintings. Absolutely. You sometimes photograph paintings. Um, music. Music. Um, so, you know, phrases just a, a, a kind of verbal representation of an artwork in another medium. Okay. But yeah, how do you think about it? Um, is, first of all, is ekphrasis the American way of saying it? I say the ancient Greek way, you know, because... <laughs> oh, what, what, how, how is, do you say ekphrasis or ekphrasis? I hear both. I don't know. I, yeah, All right. I, I, okay. I say it the way Jesus said it. <laughs> ekphrasis. Um, it's one of the gestures available for, to me in the book, which is, so ek, ek, ekphrastic practice is simply to use text to actually try to mimic exactly what's happening in an image. Like you just describe it in like painful detail so that, and I ask my students, art history students, come to the front of the class, there's this image up here, let's say Rubens, whatever, or, or you know, Wangeshi Mutu, and I say, pretend I'm blind, describe this to me. So it's one of the doorways into formal analysis. Just describe in detail everything you're seeing. Start real dumb. It's rectangular with a vertical orientation and it's monochromatic. Oh, okay, I already have a picture. And then we start building it from there. Um, it's one of the things I do in the book. I use memoir, I, use, I do some philosophy, you know. But there, there's certain pictures where I actually just describe in detail exactly what's in the, in, in, in the, in the, in the picture because as an art historian, I believe in description. I believe it is a kind of, I think it can be an antechamber to an ethics, actually. If you describe what's happening, you're allowing it to breathe in a way where something else could happen. Um, it's, it's a space maker. Um, yeah, and I just remember the second question, but it was, uh, oh, about, about the audience for this. Yeah, it's, it's curious to me because, you know, I'm, I'm a photography critic. I'm aware of the history of photography. So for me, these images are definitely in conversation with the recent history of photography. And it's interesting reading reviews that are clearly made by um, literary people who are like, ooh, that's fascinating, the way he just, you know, does pictures of buildings that are where nothing is happening, you know? I'm like, yeah, we have a word for it, you know? And, uh, and meanwhile, photography people sort of look at the book and they're... And then they do the up opposite thing, which is potentially annoying. They just sort of reel off all the potential influences. Um, but I just, you know, well, you can dream, but you want it to be its own thing. In a way, I'm more grateful for the literary reading because they're coming to it with fresh eyes. They're like, oh, these pictures are weird, you know? Uh, <laughs> you know? And meanwhile, photography people are like, oh, these pictures were already done in 1979. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, so. So thank you, literature people. That's right, I invented this style. I'm the first guy to shoot in color. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, how are we doing on time? Maybe one or two more, I think, I would think, yeah. Hi, 
Hello. An Italian actor, uh, filmmaker once said that, uh, so there's this frame that captures images, but things outside of that frame is often as important, if not more important than what's captured. In your photographs, um, I noticed that you often capture things that are not conventionally focused or um, captures attention. And can you talk about what's in your frame and outside of your frame? Outside and the frame. How do you, does your prose um, mean to capture part of that? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll answer that briefly. What's outside the frame is important. I mean, I should start by saying I love photography. I love a good photograph. I love a good photograph scanned beautifully, printed large, put in a frame, hung on the wall. And I aspire for my photographs actually to be that. So what's in the frame, even if it's not much, I want it to be a good picture. Um, what's outside the frame, you know, has a different semantics to it. So that when you first glance at the picture, I want the first feeling to be like, okay, this is interesting in a certain limited way. If you're know how to look at images, you might see more what's interesting in it and read more. But once you start reading the text, uh, to immediately start complicating what you're looking at, which usually talks about both what's inside the frame and what's outside it. Um, yeah, so I think that the, the pictures are not meant to be standalone pictures. They are um, text and image. If you come to the exhibition opening tomorrow, at the Stephen Casher Gallery, you'll see that even on the wall, I have um, the image and the text are twinned um, because it's, it's that, that spark between the two, uh, that wrong footing or that confirmation uh, that, that I'm, I'm trying to go for. But that's um, what I do. Okay, the last man. Man. Okay. Um, first off, I want to say, in addition to your written work, um, your Spotify playlist, Excellent Ingredients, is really great. Everybody should uh, check that out. Praise hands emoji. Thank you. Thank um, you. I hope you find the time to keep doing that. Um, so my question uh, is kind of in response to reading uh, Known and Strange Things and uh, reading passages about uh, just tons of different writers who I've, I've never heard of and feeling like, wow, I'm reading a very omnivorous reader uh, on the page and so mm. I just wanted you to talk about kind of where how do your reading habits come about how do you find new work do you read deeply in one person what, what yeah. your passage from book to book as a reader yeah I, I, I mean I, I, th I that, that's a helpful question because I mean I think the wrong reaction if you're reading something like Known and Strange Things which is almost 400 pages is that oh this guy you know like reads everything and knows everything it again sort of trying to foreground the uncertainty of that is that this guy really just likes a whole bunch of specific things. And there's a whole bunch of things, like any other person, that he doesn't know, you know. Um, so for me, it's about living the courage of my convictions, uh, um, having the courage of my convictions, really loving what I love, doing a deep dive into it, and then being joyous and embracing of that and being an advocate for that and saying you got to check this out I, I would really never want to claim any kind of universality um, I'm always leaving out huge chunks of stuff I haven't read War and Peace and it doesn't really bother me I'll get to it but that's fine I think intellectual labor can be very sort of like anxiety making like how can we consider you intellectual if you haven't 
read Proust, you know? You know, because intellectuals are always rereading Proust, right? And I'm like, my ass has not even read it once. <laughs> but that's okay, because I've read other things. And I've al I also watch movies, and I do Spotify playlists, you know? And I, and I watch football, and you know, I mean, your life has to be a hodgepodge of what you care about. Um, and, and to add to that, I'll also say that because we're totally immersed in culture, everybody in this room is just as able as I am to be densely elusive about their experience of things. It'll just be a different set of things. There's the stuff you care about that you really stand for, you know. I stand for Rihanna. You might stand for someone else. Or also for Rihanna, and then we can vibe about that. But it's okay to understand that everything you care about is enough to make a world. So part of my emphasis on subjectivity is to say that the self is enough because everything is coming into that self that that self needs to do its work with. And to immediately reject any anxiety that anybody tries to bring on me, like, oh, are you sufficiently expert in this? I don't have to be. I just have to be a human being experiencing something, you know? And on that very pastoral note... <laughs> We're done. We're done. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Greenlight Bookstore Podcast. If you enjoyed it, you can discover more episodes by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or stream individual episodes at greenlightbookstore.com slash podcast. You can also find the books mentioned in this episode on our website or at one of our bookstores. And we'd love it if you help spread the word about this project by sharing the podcast and your favorite books with others. You can tag Greenlight on social media at greenlightbklyn. We hope you continue the conversation about books, authors, and bookstores wherever you are, and we hope you join us again. Thanks for stopping by.